be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Katie. I think that was my fault with, with the, the, I don't know if you heard that sound a second ago, but I think that was me. Um, so sorry about that. Um, I want to start uh, this, uh, what we're doing right now, in, in a way that um, might be a little strange, but I feel like it's, uh, it's par for the course because we're in Zechariah this summer, and Zechariah's been really strange. So um, I, I want to begin by talking about parenting uh, this morning, parenting. You, you might know the name Dan Allender. He's a you know, relatively famous therapist, author, uh, professor, and in one of his books, he talks about how every child comes into the world asking two core questions behind, you know, they're not, they're not uh, vocally asking these questions, but behind every behavior of every child is, are really two questions, and the questions are, the, are these, can I get my own way, and am I loved? And he says every parent is, whether or not they know it, that they are answering those questions for their children. And so you might even think, okay, how did my parents answer those two questions for me when I was growing up? And so, you know, according to Allender, that means, you know, if there's a two-by-two grid of how you answer those questions, that means there are four different types of parents in the world, four different categories of parents. And so here's category one. Category one would be yes, yes parents. Parents who looked at their kids and said, yes, you can have your own way, and yes, I love you. And he refers to this as the, quote, indulgent and distant response. These are the parents that, that treat their kids more like friends than they do children. These are like, um, uh, these are, uh, this is like Amy Poehler's character from Mean Girls. It's, this, is, it's, this is like the parent that like bought, you, bought the kids beer in high school and just provided a lot of stuff for their kids, but didn't provide a lot of boundaries or a whole lot of guidance. And so this produces children that are confident, but they lack character. And as these children get older, they tend to act out to push the limits to see if there's anybody out there that might be strong enough to, to tell them no. So this is category one. Category two, he says, would be no, no parents. Parents that said, no, you cannot get your way and no, you are not loved. And he refers to this as the rule-bound response. These are homes that tend to be more conservative, where the rules are highly enforced, expectations are very clear, uh, there's severe consequences, high demands. And uh, he says that this, this kind of household produces kids that perform, perform really well and obey and do the right things, but they lack warmth. They lack uh, laughter. They lack humility. They, they are very polite and they do the right things, but the, emotionally they're totally disengaged. Category three would be yes, no parents. Yes, you can get your own way, but no, you are not 
our delight and you are not our joy. You are not loved. And he refers to this as the dangerous and demeaning response. This is the home where parents don't really care what children do, where the children are an obstacle in the way of what the parents want in life, which is comfort or pleasure or success or career or whatever. And so they, there's not a whole lot of oversight. Kids are just kind of left to do their own thing. They're, they're not even noticed if they're gone. And uh, this produces children that tend to feel worthless, children that are left to survive in the world on their own and to cope and figure out how they're going to survive in the world. And therefore, they don't really have a moral compass. They don't have a whole lot of concern for other people. And the fourth type of parent, are, uh, according to Allender, are no yes parents. No, you cannot get your own way. And yes, you are loved beyond belief. And according to him, he says this is the only correct option. He refers to this as the strength and delight response, where children are raised in a home where there is strength and comfort and safety in knowing that there are clear boundaries and there's joy and, and delight in knowing that within those boundaries, you are also unconditionally loved. I bring this up because I think what we're going to see this morning is that this is the way that God relates to his children. This is how God parents his children, his people. You know, we've been looking through the book of Zechariah this summer, and it's really strange, and it's, but I think it's really amazing. It's been really fun to kind of look at. But one of the things that has been the theme that has been popping up over and over and over and over and over in so many different ways is you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. In fact, I just did a quick just scan through of where we've been so far. Chapter one, God says, I'm jealous for my people. I have returned to them with mercy, not with judgment. In chapter two, he refers to his people as the apple of his eye. In chapter three, he says, I have chosen my people and I will remove their, their messy, disgusting iniquity off of them and clothe them with righteousness. In chapter four, he says, ain't no mountain high enough to stop me from getting to you. So he says in so many different ways, over and over and over, you are loved, you are loved. And now we get to chapter 5, and he says, and you can't get your own way. There is certain, I have certain expectations of how I want you to live. And it's not just however you want to do your life. I want you to conform your life, your behavior to, to my desire for your life. You can't just have your own way. And so... Um, the passage is very weird, but it's, it's kind of simple. Zechariah looks up and he sees a flying scroll, not a flying squirrel, by the way, which would be even better, but it's a flying scroll, a scroll. You know, they didn't have books, you know, bound books back then. And so they would take a piece of parchment or papyrus uh, and they you know, would be on it, like, they'd roll it out and then they'd, you know, roll it up when they were done. And so this is a picture of an unrolled scroll and it's massive. On page, or not page two, verse two, it says that it's 20 cubits by 10 cubits, which according to our measurements would have been 30 feet by 15 feet. So this is like the size of a billboard. It's huge. And it's kinda, it kind of reminds me of the, um, those advertisements that you see flying behind planes at the beach, you know, kind of up in the air, buy one, get one free shirt at, I don't know, Sandy Jays or I don't know what what is some restaurant or, or store down the street. So this is this is this kind of massive flying scroll billboard, 
And you can tell from some of the details that what this is is a copy of the Ten Commandments. It says in verse 3 that there's writing on both sides of the scroll, which is how the original Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, there was writing on front and back. Both verse 3 and 4 highlight two different commandments, which is, you know, a commandment against stealing and a commandment against uh, speaking falsely in God's name, which is commandment 8 and then commandment 3. And so here you have this massive kind of Ten Commandment scroll floating over everything, and it's kind of trippy. But here's why this is important. It's because you might remember in Zechariah's particular context, the, the temple had been destroyed by outside forces, which means the Ten Commandments which were in the temple were also destroyed. And the message is pretty clear. Just because you don't have a physical copy of the Ten Commandments doesn't mean they're not still in, in force doesn't mean that God still doesn't have these expectations that he wants you to live according to his moral design for your life, that the law is imposing itself over us. Now, I know as modern people, especially as modern Americans, we hate everything about this because we feel like it is an inalienable, inalienable, and inalienable right that we have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. And so we don't want anybody to tell us how to live our lives. So why is this good news? Why is this a, um, why do we need this? And I want to try to show you two reasons for the rest of our time why we need God's law over us. Reason number one is because we need it philosophically. Reason number two is we need it missionally. And that's kind of what I want to try to tease out for the rest of our time this morning. We need God's law philosophically. We need it to make sense of the world. And we need God's law missionally. We need it to guide us into participating in what God's up to in the world. So what do I mean by um, we need it philosophically? There's a comedian, Brian Regan, who if you are not familiar with that comedian, you need to correct that quickly. Um, Hilarious comedian. In one of his stand-up bits recently, he's talking about crime. And he remembers this expression from when he was growing up, maybe you remember it too, crime does not pay. And so he starts kind of riffing on that, and he's like, is that the reason why we shouldn't do crime? Because it doesn't pay? And then, you know, as a comedian, he kind of enters into this fake dialogue with himself, and he kind of acts this out, and he says, do you do crime? And then he pretends to be someone else. Well, yes. Well, actually, no. Uh, Well, I love crime. I love almost everything about crime. Crime is fantastic. You don't have to sell me on that side of the equation. The reason that I don't do crime, and I've crunched the numbers, it doesn't pay. Sure, if it paid, I'd be doing crime left and right. But since it doesn't pay, that's why I don't do crime. Of course, when he does it, it's a lot funnier. But, um, but then he also remembers this other crime motto from growing up of don't do, the t- don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Maybe you remember this from growing up. And, his, and, and what he says is, I find it interesting that the motto isn't don't do the crime because that would be wrong. And he's highlighting that our, our ethics are really based off of kind of selfishness. And it's what he's trying to make the point of. You should not do crime, not because it doesn't pay, not because you'll have to do the time, 
but because it's wrong. Now, how can he say that? How can he say, don't do the crime because it's just objectively wrong? Because what he means is, if you're gonna, if you're, if you're gonna say that something is wrong, there has to be a standard by which you're using to determine if something is right or wrong. And that standard has to transcend cultures, it has to transcend your personal preferences, it has to be universal. The only way that you can say something is wrong, objectively, absolutely wrong, is if there is an objective, absolute standard. Now, in our cultural moment, we have deleted this idea. We have said there are no absolute moral standards. We're, we're in a post-truth society. Nobody has the right to impose their moral values on anyone else. You do you. And that sounds right, and we like that, and it sounds progressive. There's only one problem with that. No one actually lives like that is true. We have said there's no moral standards, and yet no one's operating like that. Uh, you may have heard that the Supreme Court recently overturned Roe v. Wade. And it's a big deal. And I know people, I'm sure you know people, that have said that is, it is wrong. It is harmful. It is stripping away people's, and women's in particular, their freedom, uh, their choices, their liberty, and therefore they have uh, boycotted certain companies that support pro-life causes. They've canceled people online that have pro-life beliefs. And I know people on the other side, and I'm sure you do as well, that have said, no, this is a moral victory for our country. This was right. We have overturned an injustice. We are protecting the lives of the vulnerable. Now, regardless of what you think about that particular issue, my point is nobody is looking at somebody who disagrees with them on that issue and thinking, hey, you do you. You, you, you believe whatever you want. People are angry. People are charged up. People feel like there is an objective right or wrong that has been done. We feel this deep down that there have to be some moral standards. We all, I think this is why we, we all deep down know this is, is true. This is why nobody would look at somebody who's a mass gunman, a mass shooter, and say, hey, who am I to say that what you have done is wrong? Who am I? It would be oppressive of me to impose my moral values on you. That would be wrong of me. You do you. You are free to do you. Nobody thinks like that. But the only reason we can make those kind of judgments is if there is an objective standard, if there is, an, is, if there is a universal standard that helps us determine what is right and what is wrong. Now, I know when it comes down to applied ethics, it's not always that black and white. I know I'm oversimplifying things in a certain sense. I know that there's gray area, but my point is that deep down, there has to be some kind of moral standard. Otherwise, all you're left with is, I can look at mass shootings and I can say, I don't prefer that. I don't like that, but I can't say it's wrong. The only way you have a philosophical basis to be able to say it's wrong is if there is a transcendent, absolute, moral, universal, moral code. And what's helpful about this passage is it shows us we have one. It helps us make sense of why there's this instinct in us to want to be able to say something is actually wrong, not just, it's just not my preference. So we need it. We need 
a law in order to make sense of the world philosophically. But let's go, let's go a little bit deeper, a little bit more personal, and try to think through why do we need the law as it relates to us uh, missionally? Why do we need the law in the second sense, uh, missionally? And, and here's why. Um, verse 2 says that this scroll is um, a curse. Now, don't think Harry Potter here. Um, it's not like God's doing uh, an imperious curse on us from heaven or whatever. Um, curses in the Bible um, are not related to witchcraft. They're related to covenants, covenants, promises. For example, when I was younger, um, elementary school age, uh, I remember um, having a, this kind of conversation with some of my friends. Friend would have a secret they wanted to tell me, and I'd say, ooh, tell me your secret. I promise I won't tell anybody. And that wasn't enough for them to feel comfortable enough to share with me this information. And so I had to kind of up the ante. And you would say, I, 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 I pinky promise, cross my heart, and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I don't know if that was just like a Dallas thing where I grew up. Did, I'm sure did, people said similar things, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. And you think, what, what, what were we saying to each other? Here's what we were saying. We were saying, I promise that I will live up to my end of the, uh, end of the deal here. I will not tell anybody your secret. And if I do, if I break that promise, you can stick <laughs> a needle. I mean, it's just, it's horrifying even to think about it. But, 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 but that's, that's what a curse is. Biblically speaking, a curse is when... Somebody has broken a promise, and there are consequences. And so um, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, back in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20, I included in your bulletin, God's people looked at, the, looked at God and said, we will do everything you say. Everything that you tell us to do, we're in. We promise. Cross our heart and hope to die. And they didn't live up to their promise. They worshiped other gods, they were uh, materialistic and greedy, and they oppressed the poor, and they murdered people, and they were sexually violent, and on and on and on. They were total, they were a mess. So what God's doing in this vision, he's kind of pulling out the contract and saying, hey, remember the terms of the agreement? You said you would do X, and you didn't do it. And this is a big deal, because this matters to me. And so now it's like, the, the, it's curse time. And so look at how this rolls out. Look at verse 3. He says, everyone who steals shall be cleaned out. Now, the word cleaned out there is kind of a, a weird Hebrew word, but it basically means to be banished, to be kind of thrown out of the community. God's saying if somebody's going to live a, a lifestyle dead set on stealing, I'm going to throw them out of my community. And then look at verse 4. I will send it out, this flying scroll thing declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Meaning God's going to metaphorically take houses and just wipe them off the face of the earth, like so completely eradicate evil from his community. Which I realize these are disturbing images. It's, it's hard to hear God relate to us in any other way other than just affirming all of our decisions. But here's why this is important. 
Because God is establishing his kingdom on this earth. And what that means is he is restoring every square inch of what is broken in the world. He's restoring all of creation. And what God has said from the very beginning is that the way that he is going to do that is through his people. That his very people that he has chosen and pulled out and separated from the rest of the world are to be the ones that go and do that work of bringing beauty and goodness and wholeness into the world. And so now if you have a community that is toxic, that is violent, that is selfish, it's totally cutting against the grain from the very thing that God's trying to do in the world. It's not just detrimental for their own sake. It's detrimental to the whole mission. It's detrimental to the whole point. And so, so think about these two sins that he kind of highlights particularly, lying and stealing. Think about what lying does when it goes unchecked. Lying deprives another person of information, which is a way of depriving another person of power. And when you have a community that is um, where lies are just kind of have, have been set free and kind of are unchecked, that creates a community of uh, suspicion, community of cynicism, um, a community of self-protection. And then you think about um, stealing. Stealing is the opposite of love of neighbor. Stealing is total disregard of neighbor in order to serve my interests. So I will take from you in order to benefit me. And so if you have a whole, if you have a whole community where stealing is just kind of let loose to run free, it creates a community of, of, um, of self-protection, of fear, of greed. So God sets a boundary. And he says, uh, if you're going to be someone committed to lying, if you're going to be someone who's committed to stealing, I will banish you from my community. I will remove you from this very thing that I'm trying to do in the world. It's not because God is being strict. It's not because God's being domineering. It's because that's not what God's up to in the world. What God's up to in the world is trying to bring truth, beauty, uh, generosity. In fact, his people, the whole plan of salvation for the life of the world is to separate people from the world as holy so that they would showcase to the world what God is really like, that people would be able to look at the church, be able to look at his people and see that God is generous that God is gracious, that God is good and kind. And so when the, when the world sees the community and it's full of dishonesty and deception and greed and stealing, and th- when it's toxic, it's, it's misrepresenting God to the world. It's dangerous for the people involved in the community. And it's totally detrimental to the mission of why God has us on the planet in the first place. So this passage, for as, as hard as it is to hear, I think we have to sit with it because it is a warning to us. It is a warning for God to, it forces us to ask ourselves this question, where in my life am I out of sync with God's moral design? Where am I out of sync with his uh, moral intentions for me and for his community? And that's a hard question, because if you're someone who says, I know God doesn't want me to do X, but I don't really care, I'm going to do it anyway, that's a very dangerous place to be, according to this passage. And that's hard to hear, it's hard to say, 
But we have to sit with that. We have to wrestle with what in the world does it mean for God's moral intentions to come to us and to force ourselves to ask ourselves the question, where am I out of sync with it? Now, think about this. I, I don't know if you've seen the show uh, Planet Earth. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a National Geographic nature documentary kind of thing. There, there's one episode about the jungle. And it highlights this story about this particular kind of fungus that when the fungus lands on something, it, it, it destroys it. And the way that it spreads is incredible. It's fascinating. When one of these fungal spores will land on the back of an ant, what the fungus will do will bore its way into the body of the ant. And somehow, once it's inside the ant, starts sending messages to the ant's brain. It's like it hijacks the control center of the ant and, t and t tells the ant what to do. It's like this mind-controlled, brainwashed zombie ant that now the fungus is in, con in control of. And so it tells the ant, go climb to the top of a tree. And it does. The ant goes to the top of the tree, latches itself to a branch at the top of the tree. And once it's latched itself, the fungus begins <laughs> to digest the ant from the inside out. It's disgusting. It's, it's hemorrhaging. And as it's doing this, there's this uh, little mushroom that starts to sprout out of the head of the ant. I'm not making this up. <laughs> you can watch this. Planet Earth jungle episode. Once the mushroom has sprouted from the head of the ant, the wind picks it up and thousands of those fungal spores spread and that's how it spreads. The whole you know, colony is destroyed, as it were. It's crazy. But here's why, I was, here's why I'm talking about this. Um, because when, when sin is, is let loose to just do its thing, it destroys everything. And so God has to do something about it. But what's fascinating about this colony of ants is that what, what they will do is that once the colony begins to sense somehow in their magic ant sensors that one of the ants has been infected they will send one of the healthy, uninfected ants to take that ant and escort it out and far away from the colony to remove it. And as that healthy ant goes and removes it far and far and far away, what, what eventually happens is that the uninfected ant gets infected and dies so that the community can be saved. Now, when the law comes to us, there is nobody in this room, there's nobody on this planet that can say, my life is perfectly in sync with God's moral design for my life. And so every single one of us stands condemned. So what we need is somebody to come and to remove the fungus from us, as it were, to remove the destructive, toxic power of sin and to pull it away from us. And I know the analogy kind of breaks down, but that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes as the healthy, uninfected person that he is. And he was willing to be banished so that we would have a secure place in his kingdom. He was willing to die so that the community could survive and the community could live. He was willing, he who was perfectly a, um, a law keeper, he was willing to be judged and to experience the curse of the law so that we who are law breakers could receive the blessing of being law keepers. In other words, 
Here's how 1 Peter puts it. He dies for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, the uninfected for the infected. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why Did Jesus bear the penalty that you and I deserve so that we're just now free to do whatever we want? No. He bears the penalty for us so that we are now free to do whatever he wants. We're freed from the toxicity of selfishness, pride, everything in us that wants to pull ourselves inside of ourselves where that life is all about us. We are liberated from that. Not just the the, um, legal guilt of that, but we're freed of the corruption of that and freed to live now in sync with his desire and his design for our life, which is to do what? To love God and to love our neighbors. He pulls us outside of ourselves so that we can give ourselves away for the life of the world. So God looks at us and he says, you are loved and you cannot get your own way. The invitation for you this morning and for me this morning is to live in the strength and in the delight of what that is offered, of what he is offering to us with that unconditional love and those boundaries. That's an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, I pray that um, you would do such a work of grace in our hearts and in our lives that um, we would have such a radically altered relationship with the law, a radically altered relationship with you, where we would be able to be freed of knowing, oh, thank goodness, we, we, we cannot just do whatever our crooked hearts desire, that you do have boundaries for us, you, you do have intentions, that our lives really do matter, how we live our lives matter, and yet I, I pray that you would also overwhelm us with your love, overwhelm us with your grace, that you would give us confidence to know even when we break that very law, even when we step outside of your moral intentions, that there is a grace that is sufficient for people like us. Help us to live in this tension, this weird paradox of knowing we are freed from the law and yet also freed for the law. Help us to understand how to live in that, to walk in your ways, to be conformed more and more to your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name.